If you will, open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This amazing portion of Scripture is, according to John's Gospel, the sixth sign that the Apostle John has selected six of seven that he presents here in his good news account of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for most, if not all, of our studies in the Gospel of John, uh, you might remember the other five. If you go back to John chapter 2, for instance, the very first sign that Jesus performed that John at least has written about far more signs and miracles and teachings that are not contained in John's gospel but of the ones that he chose to capture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the first sign was John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana in Galilee you remember that was when Jesus turned the water into wine and he inaugurated his ministry by doing such a miraculous thing. And then, also in John chapter 2, the second sign was Jesus cleansing the temple. You say, well, that wasn't a miracle, so how could it be a sign? Well, the answer to that is, the idea of sign in John's gospel, it's the Greek word samion, it's the idea of not simply the miraculous deeds of Jesus, but also his teaching and his other actions. It's the total embodiment of everything that Jesus is and taught. And John captures this second sign. And the reason why we know it's the second of seven signs in John's Gospel is because all of these contexts where these signs appear has the word Samayon in it. And you remember that I told you that the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel can roughly be outlined as the first half of that Gospel, not just because uh, the first 11 chapters and with chapter 12 as a bridge that you have roughly half of John's Gospel. That's true numerically. But it's also a dividing point because the word Samayon, sign, does not appear after chapter 12, except for the last uh, chapter when it speaks in a summary way about all that Jesus did, including his signs. And so this word, sign, is used very, very clearly, even here in chapter 2, about Jesus cleansing the temple. You see it there in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And of course Jesus cleansed the temple, showing them that he is the temple, and that after three days he would rise again from the dead and be, as it were, the temple, with no more worship at a temple, because Jesus is that temple. And that's the second sign. And then the third sign that you might have, if you've been with us, seen and heard me teach in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. And it talks about, the healing of the nobleman's son. And you see in verse 48, for instance, so Jesus said to them, said to him, unless you see signs, that's our key word, and wonders, you will not believe. And then he had compassion on the nobleman's son, and he raised him up from his death. And then there was a fourth sign, John chapter 5. And that sign was the healing of the man at the pool 
of Bethesda. And Jesus healed this man by saying to him, Get up, verse 8, take up your bed and walk. And the man, of course, did that very thing. The Jews were incensed because he did it on the Sabbath. And that is the fourth sign of John's Gospel. And then the fifth sign of John's Gospel, chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And this, of course, this miraculous deed of Jesus was to show them that He is the true manna from heaven. Not just the food that you put into your bellies, but I want you to know that I'm the true bread, spiritually speaking, which comes down out of heaven. And then with a couple of chapters of explanation, not only of those things, but of many more things, we come now to John chapter 9, and we have the sixth sign. The man who was born blind. And believe it or not, in our time together, I'm going to take us through the entire chapter. One message for the entire chapter. Why? Because this particular chapter is one unit of thought. It has one thing to say to us. And in order not to keep you in suspense about that one thought, I'm going to give you the last point first, and then I'm going to emphasize it again at the concluding portion of our message. So if you look at the bottom portion of chapter 9, verse 39. Here's the one point. If you walk away today saying, what was the point of Pastor Quinn's sermon? This is it. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You say, what does that mean? Well, of course, if we understand John 9, and we will in a moment as we work our way through it, there are those in our world who presume that they see things clearly in the spiritual dimension. And because they are blind spiritually, they don't really see. And there are those in our world, like you and like me and like so many others, who at a point and time in our lives said something like this, I'm blind. I don't see a thing. I don't get it. I don't respond to it. I don't understand things. I am wicked. I am despicable. I am blind to the realities of the spiritual dimension, and I need help. And for the person who is blind like that, spiritually speaking, God gives them the sight to hear, to see, to respond, to repent, to place their faith, their confidence in Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation. There are a lot of people out there who say about themselves, I see, I get it, I understand, and they're as blind as a bat. And there are those out there who recognize and acknowledge the very truth of their spiritual blindedness. And even that, because God shows that blindedness to them, even in their blindness. And they see, they wake up, they respond. And when they do, those who are blind are actually those who begin to see. 
That's the point of the message today. And in John chapter 9, we see it so vividly worked out in the case of a man, we presume maybe even a young man possibly, who was blind, but now he sees. That's the title of the message. I was blind, but now I see. Let's dig into John chapter 9. I've got seven points, seven aspects, seven ways of working our way through this passage. And the first one we could say is this, the doing of the miracle. The doing of the miracle. John 9.1 As he passed by, referring to Jesus of course, he saw a a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now in these first seven verses of John chapter 9, we just have what you and I would say, very well written for us, the attestation of this blind man becoming sighted. But there's a lot going on here. Notice, first of all, his disciples ask him, that is the twelve, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In Israel of old, there was a sense, a kind of theology, if you will, that if someone was blind or if someone was lame, uh, someone was um, handicapped in in some way, there was a sense in Jewish theology, ancient Jewish theology, maybe even in much of Jewish theology today, that if someone were in that condition, there could only be two reasons for it either in some kind of prenatal fashion, uh, someone was to have done something uh, really sinfully, and that they, coming out of the womb, would have had uh, the judgment of God upon him. You and I would say, well, that's uh, a farce, because how could someone do something in the womb that would befall them with some kind of consequence like this? But that indeed was what some of the Jews believed. Others believed something differently. They would say something like this. No, it wasn't that person themselves, whether they're in the womb or not. It's actually something that the parents did to bring great reproach, not only upon themselves, but probably upon their offspring. And this is a result. Some kind of blindness, uh, some kind of uh, mental defect, some uh, kind of lameness, some kind of uh, physical abnormality. And it was as a result of some kind of sin, either with the person themselves who is now defected, or his parents, or her parents. What was Jesus' answer? Look at verse 3. 
it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You say, what does that mean? Well, it might be as easy to understand as something like this. No, it wasn't his parents who sinned that brought the consequences of this uh, physical impairment into his life. And uh, no, it wasn't any sin that the man himself had done, being blinded at birth, the Bible says. No, the reason why this particular man is blind is for this very event. It's here. It's now. Now, we don't know how old this man is. He could have been a young man. He might even be a middle-aged man. Certainly, if he was an older man, his parents are still living, as the rest of the text gives it to us. So, we don't know his age, but we know this, that he's been blind since his birth. And we know that the Bible is clearly saying right here that Jesus, in the very works of God, the very works that the Father wants Jesus to do right here, right now, that in the providence of God, the blindness of this man is for this moment and for the glory of God. You might say it like this. This, my, this man was blind from birth. Yea, he was blind from all eternity, so that at this very moment in the providence of God, he would be healed. This is why he was blind. So that God could do a miracle in the midst of the Jews, in their very day. Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Whose works are those? The works of the Father, through the person of Christ. And then he uses his own metaphor about the works of day and the works of night. He says, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's saying, look, it's just as easy as anyone can see. That you work, you work during the day. And you do that work during the day. And when night comes, you finish working because there is no work that can be done. Now, they didn't have the kinds of lights that you and I have. And so most people work during the day. Of course, yes, there were a few who worked at night, uh, shepherding sheep, doing things like that. But the bottom line was the axiomatic truth is this. If you work, you work during the day. If you don't work, it's nighttime. And Jesus is using that to say to all of us, I have work to do. Uh, there's, there's a day dawning in which the night will forever cease all the work that I do. And I'm working, and I'm working diligently, and I'm doing the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Because when night comes, when that last day dawns, when the night approaches, no one's going to be able to work. The time is done. There's going to be the end. It's going to be the end of all things. It's going to be the end for which no one can any longer repent and believe. That's what he's saying. I'm the light of the world. This person of darkness, whoever he may be, like this blind man, is not going to be able to be healed until I say so, and it will be done in the glaring sun of the light of day, not when night comes. The metaphor is clear. When night comes, nobody works, and as long as I'm in the world, it's going to be daytime. It's going to be the light, because I'm the light of the world. In fact, look over at John chapter 12, and he gives this same idea. Notice what he says in John 12:35. So Jesus said to them, "The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk 
while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Look at verse 44. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Do you see the metaphor? It's so clear. If you're in Christ, you're a part of the day, the light. If you're outside of Christ, you're a part of the darkness. You're groping. You don't know where you're going. In essence, you're blind. You're blind. If you have the light of the world, you see, because He's given you the opportunity to see with the spiritual eyes of the day. Having told Him that, Notice what he says in verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. That was that same pool that uh, we've earlier read about and studied about in the Gospel of John. And so this man went and washed and came back what? Seeing. It's a miracle. You say, oh, no, this is, this is Jesus. He does this all the time. No, this is even rare. This is even rare. And do you know, except for one little reference in 1 Kings, one little reference there, I think it's chapter 6, verses 8 and following, where it actually says that the Lord opened somebody's eyes, but it doesn't say that a human being did so. But now this human being, the God-man, Jesus, is opening the eyes of the blind. And we'll later find out even from this man himself, the one who was blinded who now sees, he says by his own testimony, no one has ever seen a man's eyes opened. This is very rare, folks. Very rare. Look at your Bibles in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And you'll you'll see that this is true of Jesus, but nobody else. Nobody else. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When He entered the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to Him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. He healed blind men. This is no mere man in our midst. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And they certainly did not do that. Verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. I can understand why, can't you? How about Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. This is, this is an, an amazing idea that God, in fact, does what people are are. They're incredulous in believing. How, how could this happen? How could this be true? 
If I could find the right passage, I would let you know. I think it's Matthew chapter 12. Is it? Do you see it there? How about 12.9? Oh, thank you, dear brother. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Oh, no, that's the withered hand. How about chapter 20? Maybe that's it. Sorry about that. Chapter 20. Yeah, there it is. Chapter 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is, this is the miraculous Jesus. This is the, the formidable Jesus that, that you and I have to deal with. This is the man who's in the midst of his people, who is the promised Messiah, who is actually the one who delivers what Isaiah said. He's going to give sight to the blind. And no one had seen this before. No one in any's memory, no one in anybody's history had seen this. And this was Jesus doing the miracle. Secondly, I want you to see what we might call the doubting of the neighbors. The doubting of the neighbors. Look at verse 8. The neighbors... That's those who were close to this man and and undoubtedly his family. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. Now we know he's a beggar. And that's generally what blind people had to do in that age. They had to go and maybe stand at or near the temple or a place where there was the traversing of numbers of people and they would beg for alms, they would beg for money so that they could grab food and, and whatever they could, maybe some articles of clothing so that they could clothe themselves. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were convinced. Some said, it is he. In other words, the Bible language for you and, my, for you, for you and me might be something like this. I know this man. I've seen him for years. I know that this is his face. I know that this is this man. Others said, no, but he is like him. He seems to be that man. I'm unsure. And why would they be unsure? Because nobody in the history of the world had seen a man who was blind and now see. And so they're saying, well, maybe it's him. Maybe it's not. And what does he say? He kept saying. He continually was saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered. The man called Jesus. And by the way, there were a number of Jesuses. Okay? That that, that would have been a common name in Palestine. This 
man Jesus, the one who they call Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Jesus had healed him of his blindness and Jesus continued on. He was continuing on in his ministry, in his ministry of teaching. And someone might say, well, why did, why did Jesus do this with regard to the saliva and the mud? Why didn't he do what I read before to you in Matthew's gospel? Why didn't he just touch his eyes? Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe one idea might be this, that it is said that when the prophet comes, the prophet might take that which is earthy, the mud, and apply it as medicinal to those to whom he touches. And maybe Jesus is following all of these ideas to the very letter, showing everyone that he indeed is the Messiah sent from God. And yet there's doubting among the crowd. I mean, there are some who are saying, I'm absolutely convinced that this is that man that we've seen for years and years and years begging at the temple, begging here and there, begging for his clothes, begging for food. I've seen him. I know him. I've talked to him. This is that man. And others are so stunned that they say, it could be. It it certainly looks like him. I don't really know. And so they ask him because they're doubting. And what does he say? I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man and you can understand some level of doubt no one's ever seen anything like this before I mean he's actually seeing us he could tell us what articles of clothes that we have on he might even be able to tell us by the very nature of having heard our voices he could probably tell us now I know what you look like Now I know your name is so-and-so, and and your name is so-and-so, and I've known you for years and years. Of course I'm that man. The Bible says he kept continually saying, I am the man. But they doubt. And you might say to yourself, might I have been a doubter too? I've never seen this before in the history of the world. What's going on? It's beyond my ability to grasp. Maybe I'm going to doubt because I'm not sure. Is this some kind of hoax? Have they replaced this man with another man who looks very like him? Who's doing this? What's going on? So from the doing to the doubting, we go now to the division. The division between the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. They, referring back to verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, they brought to the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of the day, you know, the, the very fastidious Jews who tried to apply every bit of the law and even beyond the law to every condition, every situation. They brought the Pharisees to the man, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, why would John insert that? Because we've already seen before that for Jesus to teach and to preach and to do miracles on the Sabbath is in their minds an automatic violation of the law of God. Verse 15, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. 
which implies, of course, that they had, had also, from the very moment he stepped in their midst, began asking questions of him. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And then there began a division between the very Pharisees, even among themselves. Verse 16, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such, what? Signs. Now we know that this is one of the seven signs. The sixth in number. You say, why are the Pharisees divided among themselves? Why is there a division? Because there were uh, two main uh, rabbinic schools. One called Shammai and one called Hillel. And the ones of Shammai would undoubtedly have been those who said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. We know that they were fastidious about that and so they would automatically brand Jesus a lawbreaker because they didn't believe he did righteously on the Sabbath. Why? Because he healed a man. You can't do work. It's against the law. So how can this man be from God? Because he's a lawbreaker. He's a sinner. But others said, according to verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such Signs. In other words, they're looking at the miracle itself. Uh, They're wanting to put him on trial. Uh, They're wanting to build a case against him. And because all men are sinners, and because Jews, having their right relationship with God through Abraham and followers of Moses, believe that this Sabbath breaker is a sinner, and if he's a sinner, how can a sinner do such signs? That's probably from the school of Hillel. And the Bible says, and there was a division among them. So not only doubt with the neighbors and those who knew the beggar, but now even a division over this man and the miracle done to him. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, referring to Jesus, since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 13. This goes way, way back to the idea of the prophets. And the prophets, when they come in chapter 13, verse 1 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, now you know why this man is saying what he's saying. This man did a wonder to my eyes. He healed me. This is miraculous. And so I perceive him to be a prophet. Why? Because this man certainly knew his Old Testament and he knew Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst." And so maybe this division within the Pharisees is, hey, this is a false prophet. Yes, he's doing what appears to be a sign and a wonder, but if he's doing it because he's broken God's law by doing it on the Sabbath, or if we actually do an adjudication of the miracle itself and we find it untrue, then this man is under the condemnation of Deuteronomy 13. And look over at chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. That means he's going to be Jewish. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. You see, you had all kinds of people who were true prophets of God by God's behest, by God's command, and you had all would-be prophets who were claiming to be prophets, who were claiming to do all kinds of signs and wonders. Do you remember when Moses even went to Pharaoh? And he started doing those, those miracles by God's hand. What did uh, Pharaoh's uh, magicians do? They, in a sense, aped some of those signs. So there were a lot of things. A lot of would-be prophets going on. And this man says, this man born blind, he, he's a prophet. And maybe there was this huge discussion about, well, is this a prophet according to Deuteronomy 13 who's doing what appears to be a sign but he's a false prophet? No, can't be that because Jesus is saying very fastidiously, follow the Lord your God, follow Yahweh God. Can't be that. Well, is he, is he that prophet of Deuteronomy 18? Well, we, we don't know. And what happens is, this man gives his pure and honest testimony, and what's the response? It throws the whole of the Pharisees into division. So the doing, the doubting, the division. How about the denial? The denial of his parents. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So you already know what their motives are. You already know where they're coming from, right? Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? In other words, he's calling even into question the very credibility of the parents. Look, you've maintained that this son of yours was blind from birth. Now, this man is now sighted. Give an account for yourself. Were you lying 
Are you telling the truth? What do you say about Him? How then does He now see? Verse 20. His parents answered, We know that this is our Son, and that He was born blind. But how He now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened His eyes. Ask Him. He is of age. He will speak for Himself. Now look, if you and I were either one or both of those parents, and we were saying to ourselves, what's our answer? You would assume that the joy, the sheer unmitigated joy of knowing that your blind son, blind for years, maybe decades, would have said something like this, Glory be to God! Right? Glory be to God! Our son who was blind now sees, and we don't care who knows about it. Right? We want to proclaim from the housetops that Yahweh has sent His prophet. Yahweh has sent the Messiah. It must be Jesus, and we are ready to die for His sake. They could have put two and two together like that. But I suspect the reason why they're not saying something like that, twofold. One that's not mentioned here, one that is. The one that's not mentioned here is probably something like this. We were as blind as our son, spiritually speaking. They don't know the truth. They don't love the truth. And they're not willing to speak of that which is so plain so clearly perceived, so clearly evident. Our son was blind, and now he sees. Only God could do that. But here's the one that's simmering just below the surface. And this is what we might call the, the social reason not to affirm Jesus. Verse 22, John parenthetically says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. You say, what is that social reason? They didn't want to be desynagogued. They didn't want to be separated from their friends, from their family, from their extended family, from their Jewish brothers and sisters. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. If you and I were given the opportunity to proclaim the Messiahship of Jesus in one of the greatest signs in the history of mankind that you had never seen, would you not be willing if you yourself and your eyes were spiritually open to say, I don't care if I am desynagogued. I don't care if I am ostracized by others around me. Our son was blind, but now he sees. This, this social constriction, this idea that we want to be a part of the in crowd, that we want to be a, a part of the group. That's powerful, my friends. 
That's really powerful. And maybe not just the synagogue, maybe there would be some who would come and try to do bodily harm to them because they proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. They proclaimed that this son of theirs not only can answer for himself, but we can also answer for him. Because doesn't the Old Testament say that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established? We're going to stand by our son. Instead, the text almost certainly implies they're distancing themselves from their own son. Social constrictions, they're powerful, aren't they? Powerful in not having people stand out from them and say, I'm a follower of Jesus the Christ. I believe in Him. I believe He's the Messiah. I believe He's sent from the Father to us to be the Savior of the world. Is it hard for you to do that? You say, well, not here. Not in this place. But put a television camera in front of me. Put me on a a debate panel with other religions of the world. Um, Cause me to be employed next to a group of unbelievers. Let me be at a college where nobody believes what I believe and where the university is harsh to people like me. Whatever the situation and whatever the scenario, what would you do? What would be your response? Well, Jesus is of age. Ask him. This is... This is the denial of his own parents. Number five, the debate. The debate. Look at verses 24 to 34. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, and I love this, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Oh, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. Verse 26, they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this is just time after time after time. They're they're pummeling him with questions. And he even gets, I think, um, a little bold himself here. He says, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Maybe a little chiding here. Verse 28, and they reviled him. This is probably not bringing a smile on his face, nor chuckles in the crowd. Revile is a very, very harsh, hard word. They reviled him. They spoke invectives toward him. Saying, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. Well, of course they don't. Because in John chapter 6, it says, I'm from above, you're from below. This is, this is a debate that shouldn't even be one. 
because the evidence is standing right before them. A man who was blind, who now sees. The man answered, verse 30, Why? This is an amazing thing! You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. In other words, insert a paraphrase by Lance Quinn. You mean you can't even figure this out? You mean you don't know where he comes from? The miraculous only comes from God. This man did the miraculous. Therefore, this man is God. It's a simple syllogism. Premise A, premise B, and conclusion. The miraculous can only come from God. This man did the miraculous. He restored my sight. Conclusion, this man is from God. So you would assume in this debate that they would respond. And he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Yeah, they had this idea, the Jews did, that uh, God doesn't listen to any sinners, and so therefore if Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, then therefore he shouldn't be listened to by God or anyone else, but God listens to him and, and Jesus does what the Father asks him to do. And then this powerful statement, verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He might have even researched that. It might have been his occupation. Can anyone heal me? Is it possible? Anyone heard any news from history up to the present? I'm blind. I just want my sight restored. I can't imagine but that he didn't also cry repeatedly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. God, please, restore my sight. I want to see. I want to be like those who see. Please, God. And he might have even had those passerbys tell him, it's never happened. It's not going to happen. Keep begging. Keep begging. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Conversely, since he did something, he's from God. Now, this is, this is the time where the debate should be over. Those judging the debate should say, case closed. The man has proved it, not only with his eyesight, but with his logic. Verse 34, here's unbelief, here's sin. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you wish, would you teach us? And they de-synagogued him. Just threw him out. Never to return. He was willing to do that. His parents weren't. They were fearing being thrown out of the synagogue. He wasn't. He wasn't. The debate's over, unfortunately. And he didn't win it. At least not here in space and time. But notice, number six, the devotion. The devotion. 
Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's Jesus' designation of himself from Daniel's prophecy. He answered, verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Is that not, certainly in this man's mind and heart, the greatest words ever spoken to him? You have seen him. He was blind. He hadn't seen anything. And Jesus said, You see me for who I am. I am He. And the man got down on his hands and knees and he worshipped Christ. He didn't care if he was desynagogued. He didn't care who knew. He didn't care what anybody thought. He had found the Lord. And he says, I believe. We're going to see this man in heaven. <laughs> and here's the greatest joy of all. He's going to see us. What a joy. He must have, must have lived the rest of his life in absolute joy. I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Unfortunately, that's not how this ends in John 9, does it? We see the declaration. The declaration. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see, like the blind man, he may see, like the blind man. And those who see, like the Pharisees, like the Jewish religious leaders, like uh, the neighbors, like others, uh, they think they see, but they're blind. They're blind. It's the total reversal of what you assume. Somebody who sees, well, they see. Somebody who's blind, well, he's blind. No. No. Somebody who's blind can see. And somebody who thinks he sees is nothing but blind. And you know, the Pharisees, verse 40, they were listening in. Not as, uh, not as those who would want or perceive themselves as blind, knowing that about themselves, assuming that about themselves. No, they're critics. They're arguers. They're scoffers. Verse 40, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, Here's the declaration. If you were blind, insinuating like this blind man, if you were blind like him, you would have no guilt, no sin. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. We are not followers of this man. We're followers of Moses. I mean, they've indicted themselves, haven't they? And by their very words and by their very actions, they come up to Jesus at this very, very critical point in the dialogue and they say, we just heard you and now we're asking, are we blind? 
instead of we are blind. We are blind too. Give us sight like the blind man. And they refuse. And Jesus says, your guilt remains. I ask you today, as we close, do you see? (laughs) Do you see? If you think you see, you're blind. But if you acknowledge your blindness, my friends, you can see. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, there are so many in our world, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, who are blind, but they think they see. They think they can perceive the spiritual issues of the day. They they presume themselves to be so cognizant of of everything and everyone. They they think they're okay. They they believe about themselves. They're they're ready to die. They're ready to meet God. They they believe that their good works are out going, going to outweigh their bad. They they presume they're fit. They presume that they are sighted but they're blind. Blind to the spiritual realities because they don't, they won't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. For so many of them, they presume themselves as their Lord. I'm not going to let anybody run my life. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'll not let anyone rule over me. That's the stuff of blindness. That's a person who's walking in the dark. That's a person who's groping in the darkness. For which Jesus is pleading for them to be sighted. And to be sighted, you have to acknowledge your sin. You have to confess your blindness. This this man was truly an illustration that God gives glory to those who confess, I was blind, but now I see. Lord, I believe You and I worship You. If you have heretofore been blind, even up to this very moment, I pray that the Lord through this text has opened your eyes and that you truly would see that Jesus Christ come from God sent to us to open up spiritually blind eyes through His death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead and that He is Lord Would you indeed receive him now so as to cure your spiritual blindness? And like this man, you could say, I was blind, but now I see. Father, open up those eyes.
and allow us, some of us for the first time ever, to worship. And for those of us who have had their eyes open for many a day, may we continue to worship and thank you for opening our eyes. We pray for the sake and in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Himself. Amen.